Welcome to the Just for Kicks podcast. As always, we have quite a bit to tackle. Things are tightening between Manchester City and Arsenal at the top of the Premier League table after a clash for the ages between the Gunners and Liverpool. We've also got the first leg of the Champions League knockout round to digest, including some shocking upsets and surprising blowouts. Steve, jury still out on the two-shell move? Been a pretty tough start, but I'll give them some time. Uh, okay. Uh, what about uh, Grand Potter? Would he have fared better against uh, Real than Super Frankie Lampard did today? Can I be neutral on this? I feel like that would be a draw as well, but you know who would have done better? Tuchel. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely would have. Can't argue with that. I just can't wait to dive right in. But first, Steve, how you doing, man? Um, you finally broke character and you said the same thing, which was you weren't worried about Liverpool. And, you know, I'm not going to lie, until about the 60, 65th, 70th minute this weekend, I wouldn't have been worried about Liverpool either. What happened? How did Arsenal drop points at Anfield. I regret being not nervous. Um, after about 35 minutes, I feel like is when it all looked good and rosy. And then Salah scored and you kind of knew something was brewing. Um, Arsenal still has not won at Anfield since 2012. Probably should have taken that into a little bit more consideration. 2012? Seriously? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a tough place to go even this season, though. Liverpool's only lost once at home, famously beat Manchester United by several goals, and they even beat or, uh, Man City even dropped points at Anfield this year. So I wouldn't chalk it up to quite the disaster that some have said. Yeah, and that's even with Mo Salah not uh, putting a penalty on frame, um, looking quite tentative for most of the match, and a hell of a save um, by Ramsdale. I mean, is that going to be the save? <laughs> When we're looking back at this season that made the point difference in this title race, because I have a weird feeling a statue of that is going to be built one day. So obviously Arsenal dropping two points from a 2-0 lead is pretty tough to swallow. And it would have been a real statement, but a loss would have been a disaster. And I think that one point that Ramsdale saved, and those were two absolutely stupendous, outrageous, unbelievable saves at the end of the game. Um, I think that one point that he saved is just as likely to be decisive in the title as the two that they dropped. Um, and like just all credit in the world to Ram Dog. He's a completely different beast away from home. The dude just kind of likes being in the dog pit. No, he does. And is it a dog pit? Is, dog is, pound. Is that what we call it? Dog, dog pound. pound dog, dog pound. Pit? I don't know, man. I don't know. What, what, whatever, whatever it is, he likes being in it and he thrives in it. But. I hate to do this to you, and I hate to do this to our listeners, unless you're Liverpool fans. But we got to give them the oxygen because of what they did. They just stymied the best team in the world, the hottest team in the world. And we still found ourselves at the end asking what's wrong with Liverpool. So let's make this very simple. Let's just go through, go through the players who had problematic performances, to say the very least despite drawing Arsenal, despite potentially beating Arsenal. Um, and you tell me whether you think they should be um, suiting up for the Liverbirds next year. Let's start with... This is such a harsh response to them drawing the number one team in the league. It is. It is. But that's the thing. In what universe does a Premier League center half concede 
that header to Gabriel Jesus. And it was Virgil van Dyke. What happened, man? I mean... Yeah, Jesus is sneaky, but the fact that he's winning uncontested headers between Bravo and Van Dyke on the back post is pretty embarrassing. But, you know, things turned around for them, to say the very least. So, Rabo, you know, has had a bad patchwork of form the last couple of matches. But that was, that was Van Dyke's header to summarily clear to safety. What is wrong with him? I mean, does he have the yips now? I mean, can is are we ever going to see the old Virgil Van Dyke? I mean, it's the same thing that's afflicting a lot of the team is that the system's just not quite as functional. That system is when it's purring, one of the best in the world, but even a ten percent drop by one player or the system on the whole, it becomes a catastrophe at times. Um yeah, it's just not quite as coherent as it was, especially in the first half against Arsenal, and we've seen a lot of that this season. Plus, you know, he's getting older. He's a lot of minutes on his legs and a couple of really taxing injuries. So might not see the Virgil van Dyke we got used to there for a minute again, but, you know, he's still a capable center half, and Kanate had a great game suit too, so. Oh, I thought Kanate was man of the match. Maybe they can kind of trade off responsibilities. He doesn't have to be the hero that he used to be. And then let's go dramatically in the other direction. Mo Salah. At this point, is it safe to say they kept the wrong winger? I'm not here for the Salah slander. <clears throat> He's still scoring and assisting pretty consistently. The goal he scored wasn't even a classic Salah goal. It was just a hustle goal. And when things aren't going well... It was a poacher's goal. And that's the half. best way to do it. Uh, get back on track. He was still extremely influential in the match and... I think I saw that Mohamed Salah had the most touches in the opposing box of anybody this season. So, listen, he definitely has looked a little bit worse this season. Maybe he's getting marked out. Again, maybe the system just isn't quite as fluid for Liverpool. But on the whole, I think it's really premature and really kind of out of bounds, frankly, to be calling Salah washed or over the hill, etc. Yeah, maybe so. Um, Let's go to the other wing. Because you bring up an important stat, and I have another important stat for you, which you've been championing the entire entire season. Darwin Nunez, still at the top, near the top of the league in terms of XG when he receives the ball. Yet, his finishing week after week leaves much to be desired. Is this a chemistry issue? Is he in his own head? What is the future of Darwin Nunez, who is immensely talented, who is built in a lab for the Premier League, who is finding space, who is doing everything but finishing, which is what he's best at. What's going on? I feel like one of those breakaways, Aaron Ramsdale, was the problem, no? He was there quick, but I mean, you can lift that ball. He had he had two or three touches. Yeah, I, I feel like Nunez will come good at some point. I'm not worried about it, you know. Everybody fluffs their lines every here and there, but ultimately he'll start burying those. He just needs to get one or two and it'll start rolling. He does seem a little bit streaky, but he's fluffing them a lot. Um, And Gakpo, after a very, very, very good run of form, um, looked invisible. And once Bobby showed up, it was a totally, totally different Liverpool side. Um, So I guess that brings me to the larger question. If you're Jurgen Klopp, you're clearly purchasing players for an intended 
stay at Liverpool. What do you do with this season at this point? Because you're not going to finish in the top four. The math just isn't there. You're not. Do you start experimenting? And when you experiment, what do those experiments consist of? I mean, is it time to see Trent Alexander-Arnold in midfield? Is it time to start messing with his tried-and-true 4-3-3? I mean, what's he got to lose? You still got to go for it. I think Liverpool has every chance to make Europa League, and that's much better than not being in Europe at all. It's certainly better than Conference League if they were to end up there. Um, I don't think they're to the, to the point yet where they're just going to start throwing in kids and younger players to both give veterans rest and to see what they've got on their hands in the youth. Um, they still have something to play for. Again, Europa League is far better than the alternative um, down the table. So you still have to fight. You still have to go for it. And they've shown recently that they do have it in them to get some results and push for that. But um, it could come soon enough where they're going to have to start rolling out these teenagers and see what they've got because there's a handful of positions that need reinforcing. Well, the kids are all right, I must say. Um, Curtis Jones looked phenomenal. Um, Harvey Elliott has looked pretty, pretty good um, as he's Curtis come along. Jones looks like he went on a roid cycle. The last time I remember seeing Curtis Jones, he was <laughs> considerably smaller. Like, he hit a growth spurt twice since I saw him last. Yeah, when he hit that back heel, there was so much velocity in the back heel that I'm not sure uh, it was going to be settled. But he's, dude, he's, he's good. He's good. Um, and we'll see what happens. But this all... This all is relevant because Manchester City are hitting their stride. They're not just hitting their stride in the Premier League where they've tightened things with Arsenal at the top of the table. They are hitting their stride in the Champions League where they just summarily dismantled Bayern Munich. Is that a fair characterization? I know it felt like a chess match, but I felt like at every point where something had to give City were the side with the extra juice. It was a phenomenal game. Um, the standard was just so high, you kind of felt like if anyone out there is not up for it, or if there is a mistake made, it's going to get found out and punished. Um, the, I mean, the difference through 60 minutes was Rodri having a complete stunner worldie. And yeah. I think that was pretty fair. You know, they both had a couple of chances, but nobody was really outplaying the other one. It was no. very stodgy cerebral everybody was very clean but then Upamakano makes one mistake it immediately gets punished the game breaks open I feel like Man City takes advantage of the fact that Bayern Munich's probably a little bit lost a little bit down gets a third goal and ultimately that's a fair result because Bayern didn't you know keep their business pants on for the entirety of the game but for an hour or so it was Extremely well fought, extremely even, and I mean, I couldn't have been more impressed. I thought both teams were absolutely fantastic. I thought it was astonishing. Obviously, the teams were not set up for it to be a one-legged fixture, but it did feel like a final in many ways. No, in fact, I thought it was really interesting that neither team made a sub until the 68th minute. Like It was 1-0, but both managers seemed to really believe in what they still had out there. Like It was was a really, really tense game, despite... Not even despite, but in addition to the fact that it was just being played so, so well by both teams. And honestly, Sané had a couple of 
crazy shots that were inches away from going in. Delict had a header that went off of Ake's head that he had no idea about. And, you know, if either one of those go in, it's a completely different game. But that's not what happened. Sané was remarkable. Um, Musiala did everything he needed to do and played well beyond his years. His maturity level was off the charts. Um, you know, I think Nabry had a solid game, but, you know, I'm curious if there's going to be a change up top after seeing a little bit of desperation, a little bit of spacing issues. And I wonder if that just kind of comes down to changing your formation, changing how the entire team is spaced after playing a Nagelsmann system for so long. It just seemed like they're still adjusting when crossing the ball, when switching up play. It just didn't feel as crisp for Bayern early on. And I feel like those were the moments where City started to get their sea legs, and it was almost as if it was catch-up in terms of momentum. Obviously, uh, Rodri's uh, strike was the difference maker, and having the room to do that says a lot about the other teams. Well, the person who gave up his mark there was uh, Gnabry. It was, I don't know what he was doing that far back, but strangely ended up being his lack of defense that was the uh, catalyst for that. Yeah, and if you're Bayern, you just can't do that because that is not your identity. Um, And you can't do that against a Manchester City team that will punish you if you do not defend with 11. If you're Tuchel, do you play someone else up top next leg? I mean, do you go with Muller? Uh, is Chupamoting going to be healthy? He just didn't really leave the mark on the match that I feel like you have to if you're going to be playing at the focal point of Bayern Munich's attack in a Champions League quarterfinal tie, especially against Manchester City. No, I totally agree. Um, pretty unfortunate for them that Chupamoting was out because they don't really have an out-and-out striker replacement. So I guess Tuchel thought that was his best option. I was kind of surprised not to see Miller start, but you know I'm not sure he's supposed to be playing at the nine either. And Mane is probably more the same to Nabri. So, well, Muller was too busy coaching the team. I mean, it seemed like everything every time things went sideways, it cut to Tuchel, and then it showed Muller with a beanie on and sopping wet, just whispering in his ear, telling him what to do. <laughs> he probably knows as well as anybody not named Thomas, or they were both named Thomas. Maybe that's something to do with it. Um, yeah, it's like when when Di Matteo was coaching Chelsea and John uh, Terry got red carded off, he essentially uh, just totally broke character and was coaching the team for the second half against Barca. <laughs> it felt like the exact same thing. I, I, I feel like they need Chupamoting to get healthy. They seem to need a real nine in there. And especially if, you know, they've got to get three goals now. So it's hard to see them doing that without someone who's got that poacher's mentality. but. Well, how much how much gas does Mane, or as a good friend Ralph Norman calls him, Maine, have left in the tank? I mean, I kind of would be inclined to start him, and if he can't make it past halftime, deal with it then. You're down 3-0 in the Champions League. His form hasn't been great, and I don't know if he gives you something that much different than Gnabry up front. Um, you know, maybe if he shows something in training or if they want to change their attack a little bit then that's a worthy option. But, you know, it just kind of feels like more of the same. Um, they're definitely going to have to switch something up. Uh, again, hopefully Chupamoting gets healthy. But if that's not the case, it's hard to see them pulling back three against Man City. But, you know, 
pull yourself together, get an early goal. Maybe City makes a mistake and you just try and give yourself a chance for the last half hour at home. Um, but then again, I think there's reports that Sadio Mane punched Leroy Sané after the game. So who knows? Um, yeah, there are more than reports. Um, it, uh, <laughs> it's been all but confirmed. And what does that say about the manager? What does that say about the state of Bayern Munich? What does that say about their chances in all competitions moving forward? Is that rhetorical? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> but agreed. I, I, I think I think we have reached a quorum. Uh, Thomas Muller it is. I think you got to put that guy up top. you got to dance with the one that brung you. And um, if they go down swinging with Muller up top, they're going down swinging with their man who knows the system better than anybody. And it's probably been Bambi's mentor for the majority of his time at Bayern Munich. So... You know, what a better way to have chemistry where it counts because they certainly were lacking it in the first leg. Any other things you want to call out um, from the match that stuck out to you? Um, I really thought that after Delict had that knock, the chemistry was a little off. You know, he toughed it out, played a pretty solid match, but he was hurting. And I do think that played a massive, massive role in Up McConaughey's. Uh, mistakes and just their general chemistry and sturdiness from the back forward. The one other thing I wanted to point out is KDB is just launching no look crosses at this point, and he's deadly enough in a normal scenario when he has to be precise. But he's finally learned that he can just alley oop anything into the box from anywhere, and there's like a thirty percent chance that Erling Haaland will get ahead on it. Um. There's a couple of times that he literally just makes no-look 30-yard crosses into the box from the corner. And, I mean, if they're going to start doing that in addition to all of their other possession play and whatnot, then I'm not sure that there's anything anyone can do at this point. So De Bruyne, you know, also you know hit a big milestone that we teased um, this week in the Premier League in their victory. He crossed the century mark with assists. So now I figure it's all just heat checks from here on out, right? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it looks like. It's, it's assists, heat checks, just constantly. If you were a goalkeeper, who would you be more afraid of right now? Erling Haaland or Kylian Mbappe? Oh, Holland. He's way closer to goal and he's way bigger. <laughs> <laughs> And he's got a team that knows how to get him the ball. Well, I said it a few weeks ago. Is Sometimes when he gets to the ball in the box, it looks like keepers dive away. And we're talking about professional, grown, adult goalkeepers. And it looks like they are removing themselves from the situation sometimes. That's how intense his presence is. It's like Manuel Almunia uh, when he used to line up the wall incorrectly so his wrist didn't have to touch Cristiano Ronaldo free kicks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're moving on. <laughs> well, let's move on to the rest of the some shocking also, results. Didn't he push that? Didn't he get a wrist on that? Didn't he push it into the corner? No, wasn't it just like the worst outcome ever? No, we were. We were. Uh, I still remember we were in my dorm room, and he was setting up the wall. And you're like, he, "He's not doing this right. He's not doing this right. He's too far left. He's too far left." And Ronaldo just drills it from yeah, like. He, 38 yards. Yeah, just blew it by him. You're right. That was embarrassing. <laughs> and you're just sitting there in real time like, 
What is he doing? What is he doing? What is he doing? I'm sorry. If it makes you feel any better. You know how that final ended. But let's move on. We had some other shocking upsets. Even Napoli. That was a heart-wrenching match for the people's champs. So close, but yet so far. What do you make of the current state of play at Napoli? And do you think that they are going to be existentially freaked out by being shut down by AC Milan the last two times they've played? Or is this just another, well, 5-1, I guess you can't call that bad luck, but is this 1-0 with the red card, with the amazing Mike Mignon save, um, everything else that happened today? Could this have gone either way? Or is this symptomatic of a larger issue that is happening? And Napoli has lost their form at the worst possible time. Napoli had their chances. Uh, they could easily be tied heading back to Naples or possibly ahead. But yeah, Mike Mignon was awesome. Um, Milan was at full health. Napoli was desperately missing Victor Osimhen. And even their second choice, uh, Simeone, was out. And you could really tell that they were lacking a presence on the back line or on the front line, um, pressing into AC Milan center backs. Um, Milan was able to slow the game of possession. Napoli was pretty sharp going forward and had a lot of good balance, but Mike Magnon was fantastic. Alex Moret was possibly, probably at fault for the goal. And that's the difference now. Um, just as it kind of felt like Napoli was going to completely self-destruct with the Anguisa red card, um, Kim also got a yellow card, so he's suspended for the next leg. Osiman's probably not coming back. Spalletti made a couple defensive changes, and they were able to ride out the last 15 minutes. I think he saw the writing on the wall, and they rescued themselves a chance. But they really they are suddenly lacking three of their probably five most important players and look really up against it. But one goal down going home is not a horrible, horrible situation. Um Milan looked really professional, though. They looked like they were ready for the situation. Milan looked like a team that has the pedigree. And as we know in this competition, sometimes the kit transcends the people that wear it. And I don't know, it just kind of had that vibe today. And the Mike Magnon performance uh, was just simply astounding. It was just one of those moments where nothing was going to get past him unless, you know... It was a rocket. I mean, you know I'm biased, but the difference in that game to me was goalkeeping. Um, there were a lot of really important moments between the 18s, but ultimately Mike Mignon made a couple wonder saves, and Moret probably could have done better on the goal. Um, but it was nice to see Champions League of that order and kind of a classic delightful Italian affair at San Siro again like it looks right it looks like where Champions League is supposed to be it looks like the halcyon years we need the Italian renaissance and we have it and just like you said it was cagey and we'll see if Napoli can do Napoli when they return home but if not we're gonna have another blue blood advancing to a spicy Champions League semifinal. Let's talk about the other two matches. Uh, Benfica, who were flying as high as the Portuguese national team was when they just stomped Switzerland 6-1, to and everybody said, they might just win this whole thing. 
Last week, we were talking about them potentially being the dark horse of this tournament. I wasn't ready to go that far, but given how long their odds were, I don't know. It seemed like a pretty, pretty good bet. Now, they got a mountain to climb. We ready to write them off? Inter Milan showed what they can do in that group of death with Barca and with Bayern. And sometimes European nights are just different for some folks. Yeah, Inter Milan heading home with a 2-0 lead, is that's doors. <laughs> I, I was really excited about Benfica. I still am excited to watch the second leg of that if possible, but um, Inter Milan just, I mean, they hit all their marks. They took two of their chances and absolutely slammed the door shut behind them. Um, tough to see Benfica coming through this, but, you know, if Inter Milan's going to be that rigid and sturdy, then all respect to them. Yeah, and then lastly, Chelsea, Real Madrid. Real Madrid really didn't have to do anything all too impressive. Right out of the gate, we saw what has been the central problem for Chelsea the entire season. They're about to go up 1-0 within 10 minutes. Yao Felix threw on goal, but you know what he couldn't do? He couldn't finish. You know what happened for the rest? Of the 90 minutes, they couldn't finish. I don't see any reason to believe they're going to be showing signs of life when things go to Stanford Bridge. Stranger things have happened. Certainly with worse. Eh, I don't know. Has there been a worse Chelsea side than this in 20 years? I mean, I, I, I didn't, I'm not sure. Um, the side that upset Napoli and ended up winning the Champions League uh, weren't exactly a murderer's row, but they could play coherent soccer. This uh, this doesn't feel like a team. This doesn't feel like anything. This just feels like gobbledygook. And Carlo Ancelotti looked relieved that he didn't have to make excuses that this was closer than it was. Did you see Don Carlos juggling on the sideline? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Man still got it. That yeah. was amazing. He took it. What was it? He volleyed, volleyed it. Uh, he's juggling it with his feet off his knee, yeah. and then back with his foot back to the player to throw it back into the sideline. It's like one thing when it happens to like Zidane and Jabi, but it's so good to see Don Carlos still got it at seventy plus or whatever. Well, he may he played in one of the greatest Italian sides of all time. Sorry, he's sixty three. I should show some respect. He managed one of the greatest Italian sides of all time. He probably managed the greatest team ever to lose the Champions League final of all time. Yeah, he's best for Champions League. Yeah, I hope he can juggle a ball. But man, to see him do it, I don't think I don't think he'd be doing that at Goodison Park though. I don't I, I don't think he'd be wasting uh, wasting the energy. I think he saved it for uh, Champions League nights at Real Madrid just to just to show the players how it's done, right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like he's 63 years old. If that ball comes down to Lamps, who's been retired for like you know five years, you expect him to settle it pretty cleanly. But yo, Carlo Ancelotti. I don't even think Lamps is going to juggle. Yeah, Lamps been, probably wouldn't. He's juggle. been out for forever. Yeah, he was showing off. It was it was fantastic. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Is Carlo Ancelotti the greatest manager alive right now? Because one game to win it all, one campaign in either the Champions League or any of the big five leagues, I got to go with Ancelotti. I think he's the perfect manager for Real Madrid. Um, I'm not sure he's the best manager in the world, but Real Madrid, Champions League, it's going to be hard to beat that as your 
option. He's just so incredibly versatile. He's won with so many teams. And the places where he has not had success, he has been, I feel like he's been hamstrung, you know, beyond belief. Obviously, what Jurgen Klopp, what Pep Guardiola, to a much lesser extent, you know, Tuchel have done over the last few years, um, obviously is pushing the game in bold, brave, brilliant new places. But Ancelotti, man, I don't know if there's somebody I'd rather play for. Um, and I, I really encourage everybody to check out the amazing documentary on uh, Apple about uh, Real Madrid season last year, because one of the most exciting things about it is seeing Ancelotti in action and really just seeing um, how fun it is to be a part of any organization that he runs. So, sorry Fiorentino, but when Ancelotti's in the room, people are listening to them and not you. Moving ahead and just kind of sticking our finger in the wind. I guess I gotta ask this question. City or the field? City. <laughs> I'm going to take the field. But really? Yeah, I mean, that's just a numbers thing. But I don't love it. It's pretty close. I just feel like they're through against Bayern 95%. But getting through two legs against somebody else just introduces too many opportunities for something to go wrong. And anybody can win one match in a final. So I'm going to take the field. But it's much closer than this question should be. Their Real Madrid, it may be doing them a service because of their advanced age to not having to, you know, go to the mat in this quarterfinal in the way they would against a better team than Chelsea. But I do think that they will be ill prepared for how Man City is going to punch them in the mouth to the degree that I don't think there'll be room for last gasp heroics from anybody. But I don't know. Kareem Benzema. Don't count out Bayern yet. We've seen some crazy 3-0s get clawed back in the Champions League. I'm holding out hope. Or maybe I'm just trying to jinx this whole thing. You know how I operate. Anyways, this week had some juicy Champions League action, and it was far more decisive in three of the four fixtures than we thought it would be. Um, You know, normally the holidays are the second legs, but we had a lot of very, very decisive action this week. And we're in the final... Final furlong of the greatest competition in professional sports, and I can't wait to see how it turns out, even though I'm pretty sure Manchester City is going to be re- uh, lifting that trophy. Well, it's been enough about the uh, Champions League, and before we move on to our picks for this week, there is a little bit more EPL action that we would be remiss not to discuss. I do want to talk about the top four race. Manchester United held serve against a floundering Everton, and Newcastle went into the Brentford Fortress and came out with three points. But what happened between Tottenham Hotspur and the Brighton Seagulls? Disheartening to say the least. And the EPL, after reviewing the mistakes their referees made, have admitted as much. Our resident VAR critic Mike is not with us today. I would have given him the floor on a rare occasion because I really not a fan of nitpicking refereeing. It happens, things happen. But this really, really was uh, a monumentous occurrence, monumentous screw-up. And is a six-point swing that took Brighton, who has been scrapping all season and knocking on the door of the Champions League, to realistically pretty far out of contention. 
Um, there's a very real chance this ultimately tilts the European spot and the trajectory of these clubs for years to come. It seems hyperbolic, but with all the money involved, with the attraction of European competition, Brighton could very well be ushering in a new era. Spurs are trying to hold on to their talisman Harry Kane and their credibility as an elite side. Steve, just how crucial were these three points for Spurs and how bad does that aforementioned six-point swing devastate Brighton at this stage of the season? They set their sights in the Champions League as a very real goal. Europe, not a horrible consolation. But man, I just hate when things shake out. Like, Yeah, I don't love talking about the refereeing either. Um, I know Mike doesn't as much, and nobody does really, but this was so egregious, it almost is unavoidable. Um, Seven-point gap now as it stands. Brighton has two games in hand. But that tells you all you need to know about the weight of the situation. Champions League was always a stretch for them, but it pretty much kills it for the Seagulls now while rescuing the odds for Spurs. Spurs desperately need Champions League football to maintain their trajectory or even maintain their status quo at the moment. And fortunately for Brighton, they still have a good shot at Europa, boosted by an opportunity in the FA Cup. But this is a terrible look in such consequential circumstances. And I'll go as far to say VAR did not steal a draw from Brighton. Brighton should have won this match without that intervention. Yeah, they really should have. And never say never. It's been a remarkable season regardless of what happens from here on out. Um, I may secretly be rooting for them in the FA Cup, despite the fact that the consummate professional I am is always a neutral observer. How cool would it be if Brighton won the FA Cup, though? Come on. It would be so cool. I think we can root for that. That's fine. <laughs> but... Enough about the top four ace. Last week, Mike delivered some of the best picks that he has, and that's saying quite a bit. I mean, he picked Bournemouth over Leicester at plus 340, and that hit. He picked Palace over Leeds at plus 260, and not only did it hit, Palace beat him 5-1. to one. Good lord. So you weren't sweating that one very long. And uh, we got some more picks this week that we think will continue, continue to fatten your wallet, kids. I got to start with a line that, frankly, I don't understand. Brighton at Stamford Bridge against Chelsea is basically even odds. So I got to go with Brighton plus 160, who, much better form. This match has literally no bearing on how Chelsea's season ends. They're all in it for the Champions League. I just see the Seagulls cruising. Sprinkle the draw if you want. That's a little higher at 260. But I don't see Chelsea winning this match. Steve, uh, what do you got? Next up, Everton plus 105 over Fulham. Fulham seems to be the first team to have hit the proverbial beach this season. Everton is actually decent at home and struggling for survival. Uh, Even odds is not too much juice, but it feels like Everton has the edge in this one. And Fulham doesn't want to be here. Anymore. Yeah, Fulham, Fulham's yeah. out. F- Fulham, Fulham's checked out. <laughs> Ever since that catastrophe against Man United, Fulham has lost five straight. So, yeah, uh, take Everton plus one hundred five at home. And the last one, we're heading over to Italy. Bologna, Tiago Motus, Bologna might have you. Wow, plus two thirty over AC Milan. AC Milan, tough match against Napoli this week. Certainly looking forward to their. Uh, matchup in the second leg of the Champions League. Maybe a chance for Bologna to catch them slightly off guard. Again, 2.30. Yeah. Um, Milan's going to be looking ahead, and they're certainly going to be worn out from what they were doing midweek. Uh, I love that one. 
Bologna's sneaky good. Bologna is sneaky good. Tiago yeah. is going to get in some coaching conversations for some bigger teams. Blast from the past. Love that yeah. guy. Well, this weekend in the EPL, I think it's safe to say the match of the weekend is Newcastle Aston Villa because Villa has been on a tear since Unai Emery took over. And Newcastle need three points badly to control their destiny in the race for the Champions League. That's 7.30 a.m. Eastern, Saturday, on USA. Um, Mike is going to be lending us his parlor walls. So, Steve, what are you going to be plastering on yours? I got two. I'm, I'm taking Mike's and mine, but I'll give Mike a little nod. First one is Lance versus PSG, BN, 3 o'clock Saturday. Lance won the retur- reverse fixture 3-1. And they're only six points back of PSG. Um, PSG's form suggests if Lons can pull this off, that they're very catchable. And a little nod to Mike. Shout out to Nottingham Forest's former keeper, Brees Samba. Um, they're plus 340 for all three points, plus 3,400 to win the league. And I think I'm going to bite. Yeah. I would too. I got one last fun one. What's your fun one? So this is a good time for us to introduce... The Brazilian team, Fluminense, they are kicking off the Brasileiro this uh, weekend. And for our, you know, a bit more cultured folks, they'll be an extremely exciting team to watch. They have a manager named Fernando Denise, who is kind of at the forefront of what is being termed as relationism. That's mostly just a way to bottle it up for English speakers, as Brazilians have been discussing this in their languages for forever. Um, But it's kind of a response and a shift of the paradigm from all this positional play that we're seeing. And they have what is a much more um, fluid approach. Whereas if you see Pep and Arteta and Tuchel's soccer as orchestral, most people would define Denise's soccer as jazzy. Um, I was just about to ask. Yeah. Very exciting to watch. A lot of interplay and overloading of zones that is all a response to how the opposition sets up and where the everything is versus trying to dictate um, the space in more European ways. Um, really good way to kind of get something different on your palate. They'll be playing at 3 o'clock Saturday on Paramount+. Plus. Um, and they are led by the world-famous Gonzo and just added Marcelo. It's his boyhood club. Oh, wow. Yeah. Can he still uh, cross it with the best of them? He scored last weekend in the state championship against Flamengo. Wow. Yeah. Um, highly recommend checking them out. It, it, it's something very different for your eyes. So let's get a little cerebral here um, because Mike's not with us. Um, I think this is where Mike is headed. Mike's headed down to scout out some South American footy. Yeah, I I hope so. But, you know, if total football, you know, is total football. And if Pep Guardiola's system, you know, is Pep Guardiola's system and Tiki Taka is Tiki Taka, you know, where really does this Fluminese tactical approach line? I mean, is this is this literally just having the chemistry to occupy space, be clever in that space, overload that space, and then once you find the channel to the goal, take advantage? Or is this a more possession-based system? So the Brazilian term for it is Yogo Functional, which is a much older term, and it's just kind of getting rebranded and updated. Um, 
it's very much the South American idea of not taking too much of the game of the street away from your players and allowing them to express themselves and be creative and being distinctly South American, whereas European is much more organized and structural and what has come to be termed positional. Um, Denise even goes as far as to call his game anti-positional. And the idea is that the positions you are in dictate the space versus the spaces dictating the positioning. It's just kind of an inverse of what your points of relation are and your references on the field. Um, there's a lot of minuscule or concepts and whatnot within it that start to appear uh, if you watch it consistently, but it it will initially look like a possession game and interchanging, et cetera. But underneath that, it is a far different approach to how to progress the ball, how to create problems for the other team, how to expose and create space, and most importantly, allow people to express themselves. Well, this has been the Just for Kicks podcast. I've been thrilled to be joined by Steve. You can hit us up on uh, social media, uh, on Twitter, at Just for Kicks FC, or if Instagram's your preferred platform, you can hit us up at the Just for Kicks podcast. Steve, anything you want to uh, say to the kids before we go? Any uh, airing of grievances? It was just Easter. No grievances. Something very exciting. Uh, shout out Ben Foster famous for his time at Man United briefly, also West Brom, Watford, etc. Uh, made a huge penalty save for Wrexham, who is very well known in American circles at this point, probably getting them promotion to the League Two of the EFL Pyramid. Huge boon for them. Um, very exciting addition to their Hollywood story. Almost too good to be true. It was a hundred there was like a ninety-third minute penalty save to save the three points. And also shout out Burnley for getting promoted um from the championship back to the Premier League. Burnley's earliest back. team or earliest ever in the calendar to get promoted automatically. So very impressive from Vincent Company Income. There's so many people managing these teams who I remember watching a long time ago. I am ancient. Yeah. And um they're all better at it than Steven Gerrard. <laughs> was I, who did I mention today already? Lampard, Tiago Mata, and Vincent Company are all managers. Oh, my God. I'm going to go take a bath. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure. Make sure to check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are the lovely listener. We're just for kicks. We're stoked you joined us. Enjoy the beautiful game. Watch Brazilian soccer. Yeah. Godspeed. Godspeed.